<clears throat> Turn to John chapter 13, please. What we're going to do this morning and the next two Sundays is we're going to consider Judas. He has, uh, as far as I know, at least from my snapshot of 40 years of maybe 34 years of attentiveness to preaching, that I've never really heard any exposition on Judas that maybe used this kind of a dirty name. Um, but what I found in these last few weeks in reading ahead and studying Judas, that John gives him so much airtime. And the Gospels give him so much airtime that there's, I was convinced that there's something more there. And where I'd like to go this morning is the first of three sermons. The first sermon will be the title is, When Someone You Love Leaves the Table. And we're going to climb into that in a moment. Let me give you a sense of where we're going the next couple of weeks. Next week will be, I don't have a title yet, and the title will probably change, maybe even after I preach it. But the title next week will be somewhere along the lines of Judas and apostasy. If you don't know what apostasy is, that's not a real heady academic word. It's a word worth knowing. And I encourage you to jot it down and use dictionary.com or something like that and look it up. And uh, that's where we're going to be going next week. If you've ever had the question, can you lose your salvation? Or what happens when someone falls away from the faith? What is that? We'll reckon with that next week because Judas is a great illustration of that. And the Sunday after that, we're going to compare Judas and Peter. And we're going to see a picture of one chosen, one not. One fallen away, one restored. And how that works. And we'll see God's sovereignty and His design all over that. So this morning, we're going to begin with chapter 13. What I want to do is I want to read 30 verses in chapter 13. <clears throat> As I'm going through, maybe kind of pay attention to Judas. Keep your eye on the football, and the football this morning is Judas and imagine what we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to draw out some details about Judas and we're going to kind of do what those crime shows do where they put that guy's picture on a bulletin board and then they kind of try and piece things together and they introduce other people and they draw those yarn, you know, put those yarn connections, you know. We're going to do some of that this morning and we're going to get to know this, this ominous figure, Judas, and we're going to see what God can show us about Judas. So we'll begin in chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, <clears throat> and that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do to others, or do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, who was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, likely John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Just from John chapter 13, we can glean some important facts. We can start to put some details on the bulletin board and start to put some yarn connecting those facts. First of all, in verse 2, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, this is kind of a little side lesson on our Bibles. I want you to know that if you have the ESV, NIV, NASB or one of the other major versions, you can trust your Bible, but this is kind of a little side lesson on texts. The way they build these translations and Bibles, they don't have this one copy of a manuscript and then these teams get together. I'm on the NIV team. I'm on the NASB team. I think I'll be on the ESV team and they all give their best shot at that one manuscript. In fact, we don't have the original manuscript. We don't have the copy that John sat down with pen and paper and wrote it out. We have early manuscripts. We have copies of them. And the earliest manuscripts are typically, not always, but typically the most reliable. The earliest manuscripts of this passage translate this verse. The devil had already made up his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. The devil had already targeted Judas. You're going to be my man. I'm going to use you to betray Christ. You will be my instrument. And this is the only way to reconcile with verse 27, where it says Satan had entered into him after he took the morsel. That's the only way to reconcile those two and to fit those two together is to appreciate that this translation, the devil had already made up his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. So we know... That Judas has been targeted already. Put that on the board. Satan's going to use him to his own ends. The second thing we know is we know that Jesus washed his feet. Look in verse 5. It says, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
And then in verse 12, it said, when he had washed their feet. There's no picture here that he washed everybody's feet except for Judas. This is a wonderful picture of a passage in Luke 6. If you'd like to turn there, it's just kind of a peripheral passage, but it's one that I think is worth considering. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. I think we can appreciate that Judas was an enemy. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus is demonstrating an otherworldly kind of love right here in washing Judas' feet. So we know there was a love for Judas. We know that he washed his feet. I'll tell you right now, though, it wasn't saving love. But it was some level of affection. For Judas. Go back to John 13. It says in verse 10, it says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he's t- saying to Peter and the rest of the disciples, he's saying, And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So, so far we know that the the devil has targeted Judas. He's going to use Judas for his own end. We know that Jesus washed Judas' feet. We also know that Judas was not clean. This cross that he would submit to the very next morning, just a few hours later, would not intersect this guy, Judas. The blood that was spilt would not wash him of his sins and cleanse him of his iniquity. This guy, you've got to appreciate, this Judas may have been one of those that actually went out and cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He may have gone out with the 70 to preach the word of Christ. He may have been used as an instrument. His hands may have actually passed out the loaves and fishes on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee. Yet the cross will not and does not and did not intersect with this guy. He would not be cleansed by the work of the cross. So we know he's not clean. And this connects with verse 18. Says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We know that he was not one of the chosen. That's what he's saying there. I know whom I've chosen, and this guy, this joker right here that's going to betray me, who's eaten my bread, will lift his heel against me. He is not one of Christ's chosen. John chapter 18. Verse 9, just flip over there. You can kind of keep your finger in John chapter 13. Chapter 18, verse 9 says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. What you've got to appreciate is that Judas was not one of those who's given to Christ. He was not one of those that was chosen by the Father to be dragged and drawn to the Son. If this is a little bit complicated for you, if this sounds a little bit too predestined for you, I'm going to deal with this more later, and we'll see this a little bit more in the next couple weeks. 
Next thing we know from this verse 18 where he says, he's not one of my chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. We know that his betrayal was prophesied. It wasn't a surprise. God wasn't snoozing when this happened. In fact, a thousand years earlier, David wrote in Psalm 41, he wrote, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's what this is referring to right here. It was prophesied. So Judas was going to be used as an instrument, put it on the board. Jesus washed his feet, put it on the board. Judas was not clean, put it on the board. Draw the line to it. Judas was not chosen. His betrayal was prophesied. Put it on the board. And then next in verse 18, which is just one of the most sickening things to me, says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This one, this Judas, had eaten the bread of the ministry for three years. He sat at Christ's table for three years, and yet he betrayed Christ. When someone falls away from the table like a pastor, and you've seen it happen, I bet if you've been in the faith for long, you've seen a pastor of a church fall away from the faith and fall into sin. Or you've seen a staff member, or you've seen a deacon, or you've seen somebody of prominence fall away, and sometimes this is viewed as an indictment against the ministry itself. And I shudder at the thought when I think about this and I consider and appreciate the fact that there hasn't been nor will there ever be this side of glory a sweeter and more effective ministry than a ministry of Christ himself and yet one in 12 fall away from his table. Don't you dare let that be an indictment against any ministry if any prominent person falls away from it. Oh, must not have been worthwhile. This guy Judas had been given the very best preaching. <laughs> he'd, been the be- he'd gotten the best there is to offer. The 70 didn't get it. The 120 didn't get it. The 500 didn't get it. The saints over the ages haven't gotten it. We haven't gotten it. Judas got the creme de la creme of Christ's ministry. And yet he fell away. Some of you who've seen it happen, don't you dare let that be an indictment against the ministry. It happened to Christ. It will happen to every ministry at some point. The next thing that we can learn from verse 21 says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I want you to connect his troubled spirit to the reality that one will betray him. This Christ is not indifferent and unaffected by someone leaving the table. Did he know it was going to happen in advance? You bet he did. I'm going to show you that in a moment. But he's not indifferent. To that, hurt him. He's troubled in his spirit that a man that sat at his table for three years, that ate his bread, that walked with him for three years, would betray him. We also know from verse 21 that he knew in advance that he would be betrayed. Chapter 6, just a few chapters over. Verse 70. This is right after Jesus has just said, he said, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Those that have such an, think the thought of predestination is so unsavory. (laughs) You're not the first ones to do that. In fact, the next verse says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't like the thought of that, that no one can come to Christ unless it is granted him by the Father. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? You want to go away as well? And Peter says, where, should we gonna, where are we going to go? And then in verse 70, Jesus answered them. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You've got to appreciate and know and recognize that early on in the ministry, early on in walking with Judas, that Jesus knew who would betray him. He wasn't caught off guard. It wasn't a surprise to him. Now here's one of the most amazing facts of this whole thing. Verse 22 of chapter 13 says the disciples looked at one another. This is after Christ says, one of you is going to betray me. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And that's when Peter kind of motions to John and says, hey, ask him who it's going to be. And that's when Jesus said, it's going to be the one that eats this morsel that I dip. The fact is, these guys had no clue. They spent three years with this guy, 24 and 7. And we like the thought of this guy walking around kind of wearing black all the time, kind of furrowed brow, looking like, man, he's up to no good for three years. But they walked with him for three years. They had no idea who it was going to be. Does that scare you at all? Man, you go camping with somebody for a weekend, and you really get to know them, don't you? Imagine camping with somebody for three years, <laughs> eating every meal together, sleeping beside them on a rock next to them. You're going to get to know them. And here, this passage says that they were uncertain of whom he's speaking that's going to betray him. That scares me to death when I consider that. These guys were either really, really, really stupid, <laughs> or Judas looked just like him. <laughs> I think that's probably the case. When Jesus was teaching on the parables of the, or he was teaching the parables of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13, one of those parables had to do with wheat and tares. And this wheat farmer plants a field of wheat, and then somebody goes out there and sows these weeds that are called tares that look a lot like wheat, except they don't bear fruit. And that's what this sounds like here. He looks a lot like them, yet he's not bearing fruit. The fact that Jesus ID'd him and they still didn't get it tells me that this guy looked a lot like them. So we know that the devil has targeted Judas. We know that Jesus washed his feet. That's on the board. We know that Judas was not clean. We know that Judas was not chosen. We know that his betrayal was prophesied. We know that he had eaten the bread of the ministry. We know that his betrayal of Christ troubled Christ. We know that Jesus knew that he would betray him in advance. We know that the disciples that spent 24 and 7 with him th for three years had no idea it was him. And then in verse 27, it says, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly so we also know that satan took control of him i want to be real careful about sensational possession stuff you can get so bogged down and focused on something like that where you run away with what is that what's going on there i don't want to deal with that at all i don't want to paint this picture that judas from that point on had these kind of bug eyes with the little red rings where he's i must betray jesus I think he had his faculties about him. But he is being controlled in many ways by Satan at this point. 
And when Jesus turns to him and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. I wonder if he's speaking right to Satan. Go ahead, Satan. Do what you're going to do quickly. You won't scratch your behind without permission from me, and I'm giving you permission to do what you're going to do. And then the last picture, the last fact, the last thing that we can put on the board from John chapter 13 is in verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The ominous imagery of John comes into play there where he just ends this connection with Judas. All these details, all this airtime of Judas, all these movements and the betrayal and the heartbreak and the troubled heart of Christ. And he says, it was night. And the reality is when somebody walks away from your table or walks away from the table of a ministry or from the table of a friendship or the table of a family, you know what I'm talking about when I say it is night. And that's what's going on right here. Put it on the board. A few other things that we can put on the board. You don't need to turn there. I just want to share with you just four other facts before we go with what we're going to do with this. First fact that I want to deal outside of John. Matthew 26 tells us that he conspired with the chief priests. I want you to appreciate that that's just not just some random fact. That the picture of Judas conspiring with the chief priests is a picture of Satan conspiring with Israel. <laughs> it's all over our Bibles. It's all over our Old Testament where Israel is whoring with their neighbors or whoring with the world. And that's exactly what's going on right here. It's an image of Satan making a deal with Israel. And then we know in John chapter 18 that in the wee hours in the Garden of Gethsemane after Christ prayed... In the wee hours, Judas shows up with the priests, the Pharisees, and soldiers to apprehend Christ, and that he betrays him with a kiss. And the last thing we know about Judas can be found in Matthew chapter 27. The last details Say that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver. That's what he betrayed him for. 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. And he says to them, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hung himself. Put it on the board. That's all we know about this guy. Now why these details of Judas's departure from the table and why the surrounding details matter for us is where I want to go next. In five years of pastoring, I've seen close friends leave the table of the ministry. In five years of walking with a people and a micro flock, I've watched spouses leave the table of a marriage. In five years, I've watched young adult children leave the table of a family. I've watched once zealous church members leave the table of the ministry. 
In five years, I've watched whole families pick up and leave the table over one reason or another. I've watched new believers leave the table. I once baptized a guy that came to corporate worship one more time the next Sunday. Never darkened the door again. Wouldn't return phone calls. Wouldn't return email. He was done. In five years, I've watched old, seasoned, mature believers leave the table. When I watched this movement of Judas leave the table, I realized there's some goods in here for us. There's some nourishment in here for us. When these scenarios have happened, these situations have happened where people have left in every case there has been and there continues to be, and I bet if this has ever happened to you, you can relate to this, there has been and there continues to be very real physical and spiritual pain over those separations. Families who have left have sometimes, and I will say rarely, left on good terms. Usually it's you just don't ever see them again. Except you might see them in Walmart. And when they see you, they're ducking. Oh, I needed some dog food. There's Ben McGraw. Very, very seldom do we leave on good terms. Very seldom is there ever any explanation or any closure. But a family just gets up and walks away from the table. New believers who have left have left for sex and drugs. I've seen it. Just a little bitty snapshot of ministry. Just five years, guys. I'm no long, I'm no, no, uh, I'm a greenhorn. I was about to say, I'm no longhorn. <laughs> yeah, I'm no longhorn. I mean, I'm kind of a greenhorn, actually. Five years? That's not a salty season ministry. In five years, we've seen spouses who have left for sin and to follow faithless false teaching it's happened in five years on more than one occasion we've seen young adults who have left family and church family because they didn't want to honor their parents wise counsel or the wise counsel of the church leadership we've seen families who have left because of how i said something i'm going to address and deal with that later we've seen families that have left or somebody who's left because someone didn't say hi on sunday morning five years I've seen old seasoned mature believers who've left the table because it wasn't set to their liking in every case their parting has been painful in every case in every case their parting has been painful and there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't troubleshoot every word spoken that I don't troubleshoot every tone that I used that I don't wonder if I could have done it differently, that I don't wonder if the elders or the leadership could have done it differently. Hardly a week where I wonder if we could have done a better job. I've longed for a resource to guide me and us through these tough times. I've seen families hurting with nothing. I've hurt it with nothing. Empty-handed. And in some weird way... (laughs) In God's incredible sovereignty, I'm finding a resource in how they dealt with Judas, of all people. Now, one thing I want to say before I continue, I want to look at the dynamics of Judas leaving 
and how it impacted the disciples, how it impacted Christ. But I do not in any way want to imply that someone who's left Crosspoint is Judas. That's not my place to say that. I don't want to in any way imply that a friend that has left the table of my friendship is Judas. I do not want to say that, and I don't want you to go there either. This that we're engaging right here matters because it's not a matter of if someone you love will leave your table or leave the table of the ministry, but it's a matter of when your night will come as someone you love walks away. If you spend any intentional word-exposing, people-loving, bride-presenting, accountable-to-one-another time at the table, someone you love will leave the table and you'll have to deal with it. And I'm thinking there's some sweet, sweet, sweet resources right here. What I want to do in these next few minutes is share four lessons from what we see in Judas and how he interacted with the disciples, how they moved on, how Christ interacted with him. Four lessons that we as the people of faith can learn. But let me share a caveat before we continue. It's really not a caveat. It's just a way out. If you never want to be betrayed, here's how to go about doing that. You can protect yourself from betrayal. You can protect yourself from the dark night of anyone walking away from your table by never getting close to anybody. You can protect yourself from this by never being part of a community of people, a community of faith that holds each other accountable. You'll never be betrayed or disappointed if you never get close to anybody. I don't recommend it. I do make you that promise. But you also miss out on the treasures of being engaged with the people of faith. If you want to really dine and want to be members of one another and want to really engage each other, guess what? You will be betrayed, you will be slandered, you will be hurt, and we can learn some things from Christ's dealings in these next few moments. First lesson that I want to share with you this morning is not to put your faith in man, even if he's the trustworthy treasurer. When I consider the dynamics of what's taking place here in the Reality that Judas is the money man. Insert organization X, business X, club X, hopefully even church X. You're going to have people that are in charge of the money, people that you can trust. (laughs) Those times were no different. So the fact that Judas, the guy that's the money man, is the man that betrays Christ tells me that he was one of the most trusted among them. And the reality is that even the most committed among us, even the ones that we think we can trust the most, will fall and fail. I'm just thinking this guy was trusted, yet he's the one that leaves the table. Look at John chapter 2. I want to show you how Christ approached trusting man, or whether or not to trust man. John chapter 2, verse 23. says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, he saw, when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. 
for he himself knew what was in a man. We can follow Jesus' leader, Jesus leadership here in not entrusting ourselves to a man either. Not placing your faith and your trust in a man because we ought to know if Jesus knows what's in a man, we ought to trust that if Jesus isn't going to do that, then we shouldn't do that either. And we shouldn't put our faith and our trust in a man even if he's the man that holds the money bag. When I think about Judas leaving this table, I think about the fact that he may have been one of the most trusted among them, that this could have crippled their ministry from that point on. Think about how that happens. When somebody you're really close to, somebody you really trust, the closest one among you, the one that you have the most trust in when they fall, this could have tripled their, crippled their ministry, and instead it actually seemed to make them trust him more. Turn to Acts chapter 1. This is the last treatment of Judas in the rest of our Bible. There's lots of detail provided about Judas in the Gospels. And this is the last time that anybody talks about him, at least scripturally. The last time that anybody deals with him is in chapter 1 of Acts in verse 15. Christ has ascended to the right hand, and it says here in verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. It says the company of persons was in all about 120. So this is 120 of his closest followers are all together there. And Peter says, okay, we've got to deal with Judas. I know you guys were hurt. You trusted him. He was the money man. I know we slept together right beside each other, stone by stone sharing the same dinner table for three years. I know you're hurt by this issue of Judas. Let's reckon with it. And Peter says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. This is the only other time that anybody deals with with Judas there is zero other treatment in the rest of the whole book of Acts and in all the other letters zero treatment and it seems like at some point that if they were like me if they had placed any faith in Judas that at some point if they had a bad day in their ministry they would have hey let's beat up Judas day it'll make us feel better about ourselves Paul's planting a church and he's struggling he's having a difficult time Hey, you know what we ought to do? Let's kind of create a diversion from the fact that I'm struggling in my ministry. Let me put Judas up here. Let's all pummel him for a while. We'll feel better about ourselves. I don't see it. Because they had not placed their faith in Judas. The fact that Judas failed, they said, okay, we've got to reckon with it. Let's deal with it among the 120. And then let's move on. Let's not put our faith in this guy that counted the money. Let's not put too much faith in any man. And it seems to be what these guys point to, what Peter points to, is God's sovereign work, his design, and his perfect plan. And that's the salve for how to deal with the heartbreak of Judas leaving the table. That God was on his throne, guys. He wasn't caught unaware. Peter is dealing with it by pointing Godward. These guys had walked with Christ for three years. They'd walked with Judas 
for three years. But it's so clear to me where they placed their faith, and it wasn't in Judas. In five years, I've gotten acquainted with the reality. Of course, I knew it beforehand growing up when I, I grew up in church, when I heard a teacher preach or a teacher teach. There's this affection for your teacher or your preacher. It's natural. There's also this respect for a teacher or preacher. And all all those things are appropriate. But then we can take it to the next level where we put our faith in that teacher or preacher. And in five years, I've seen it. There have been times where I've sat at a table with you or sat at a, in a den with you where you want to become a member of Crosspoint and we're talking together, we're getting to know each other and I can tell by the way you're looking at me that you're thinking, this guy's going to be different from my last pastor. I can trust him. I can put my faith in this guy and I want to do something to just go ahead and give you the bad news right up front. Pick my nose or something. Burp. Really all I have to do is get to know you a little better. Or you find out, dude, this guy's not all that. And I do everything I can to get it right up front to not put your faith in man, in any man. Don't put your faith in your pastor. Don't put your faith in your husband. Don't put your faith in your, faith in your wife. Kids, don't put your faith in your parents. There's only one person with a capital P that rates your faith. That is our sinless, trustworthy, reliable, faithful, unchangeable Savior, I make you this promise. If you put your faith in me, you will ride a roller coaster of heartbreak. I'll tell you what ministries look like when they put too much faith in their pastor. When the minister falls, the ministry fails. That means they put too much faith in their pastor. But you can ride the miserable roller coaster of having too much faith in a man, if you place your faith in your pastor or your teacher or your husband or your wife, you'll find yourself analyzing every word. You'll find yourself analyzing every tone. You'll find yourself missing the substance and the context and the meat of what has been said because of how it was said. I want you all to know, I know in the last five years I've hurt people by how I've said things. And I want you to know that that's on my radar screen. The word is painful enough sometimes. I don't want to add to the discomfort of the truth being exposed, Ben's frustration. And my journey of preaching week by week is trying to separate my humanity and my flesh from this event. It is hard to do. Sometimes I've had a bad week. And you may hear tone that may diminish the truth of what's being exposed. And I beg you to not put too much expectation on me. I'm not asking for carte blanche to say whatever I want to say, however I want to say it. But I'm helping you maybe diagnose if you've got too much faith in a man, if you're riding the roller coaster of how I've said things from week to week. I'm begging you not to go there. If you're here for any man... You're here for all the wrong reasons. It's a matter of time before you're disappointed. Don't put your faith in me or your teacher or your dad or your mom or your husband or your wife or your friend or any other person. There's only one person that rates our faith. Second lesson is to not let others' departure from the table damage your faith in the Lord. 
I've looked for it in the rest of the letters and the rest of the writings, the rest of Acts. And what I don't see from any of the apostles' writings, I don't see any indication that there's a tone of this. Man, that old Judas, me and Judas were so close. We were fishing buddies. We shared a rock at night. We'd sleep beside each other. We would share a tin plate as we ate food together. We were camping buddies. We were pals. We followed Christ together. He said he loved Jesus too, but he betrayed him and walked away from the table, so Christ must not be true. That's a tendency among us. It happens in churches when someone of prominence falls. I'll take you to Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans seems to deal with some problems in the Roman church there where these Jews and Gentiles were kind of conflicted about what the truth was. And it looks like the Gentiles were troubled at the fact that all of, Jew, all of Israel, all of the Jews didn't just embrace Christ as the Son and as the Messiah. And he deals with that in detail later in the book of Romans in chapter 9. But here in chapter 3, he's dealing with the issue of circumcision. He's just addressed circumcision. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. The true followers are circumcised in the heart. It's not a flesh thing. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, he's kind of arguing with this imaginary church member that's sharing their objections to what he's saying. And this imaginary church member saying, well, what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? What if they got the gospel and didn't get it? What if they walked with the Messiah among them, heard him preach firsthand, and said, no thanks? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. That's lost in our translation. That's an idiom in the original language that would be something to the effect of, not in a million years. Does their rejection of our Christ mean that God is not faithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If every person that you have ever known, if every preacher you have ever heard preach, if every teacher you've ever heard teach walks away from the faith, God is no less righteous. The gospel is no less true. Though everyone who were a liar, let God be true. What they quote here and what Paul quotes here in chapter 3, that little section that you set off in your Bible there in verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 51, where David has just shared this psalm when he's caught in sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan comes in and says, dude, you got dirty feet. And he looks down and he says, oh, I do. And he writes Psalm 51, and embedded within that psalm, he says that you may be justified. I've sinned. Here's what he says specifically and exactly. Here's how he says it. Against you and you only have I sinned, God, and I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David sinned in order that God be proven right when he speaks, that he may prevail when he judges. 
Here's the hard thing to get your head around. When you see somebody fall, when you see somebody sin, when you see somebody betray somebody and walk away from the table, is that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness. It puts it on display. Our faithlessness puts his faithfulness on display. Look at it. See, God doesn't like glory thieves. That's why I'm begging you to not put your faith in any pastor or any husband or any wife because you're setting them up for a serious fall. God hates glory thieves. And the, here's the reality. The more sinful the man, the more sinful man is the more glorious the gospel appears. That's what he's saying here. David is reckoning with his sin. He's not writing it off saying, oh well, I sinned with Bathsheba. I killed Uriah the Hittite. God be glorified. He's brokenhearted in the reality that it is in his wretchedness that God's glory and grace and gospel are on display. So when someone that you've Maybe you expected a lot from. I was about to say put your faith in. Don't do that. We just said that. Walks away from the table. Don't let that damage your faith. It validates the faith. It puts the gospel on display. Don't embrace it like, oh, I'm sure glad they walked away from the table. But realize that God's faithfulness is showing up in the unfaithfulness or the faithlessness of man. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I told you I was going to deal with the choosing thing. This verse does that. If you're a little bit uncomfortable with the thought of God predestining and foreknowing, I'll connect this to the, uh, what a departure from the table should do or not do to your faith here in a moment. But let's start in chapter 4, verse 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very same God that said, Let there be light, is the very same God that has shown light in your heart to give you a knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This connection that I made over here where these guys are chosen and this guy's not. And I haven't lost any of these guys because they're chosen. (laughs) Because it's been granted to them to come to me. That connection, you've got to appreciate, is by God that's so able to do it when he says, let there be light. It's the same power involved when he says, let there be light in your heart to see my son. For the gospel to be offered to somebody and somebody really see it and say, nah, would be like God saying, let there be light, and the son saying, nah, I don't think so, God, I pass. That's the power that's at work right here. The same light, the same God, excuse me, that said, let there be light, is the same God that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God of God in the face of Jesus Christ and go on to the next verse and this treasure, this treasure of this gospel that's so unsavory for some, I don't like the thought because we compare this love for God like love for our girlfriend. (laughs) We can't understand this sort of love. He goes on to say this thing that's really a treasure that may be so unsavory to so many, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God 
and not to us. Here's the reality. What God chooses, He will not lose. What God chooses, He will not lose. This treasure that He has chosen, that He's shed light in the souls of those who will come to His Son, the reason He's put those in jars of clay, have you ever owned anything that's made of clay? It's really fragile. The reason He's put those in jars of clay is in order that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He hates glory thieves. So He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen a bunch of clay-footed people to preach the Word. He's chosen a bunch of clay-footed people to be salty and bright and aromatic in our community. He's chosen a bunch of clay-footed shepherds to lead families. So when, not if, when those men fail, when that clay breaks... Don't you dare let that diminish the gospel. Don't you dare let that damage the gospel and the righteousness of God. He's done this in order that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the darkness of others leaving the table, of a friendship or a family or a marriage or a relationship, rather than diminishing your faith, it should reorient your faith from a bunch of clay-footed men to a one and only bronze-footed God. The very thing that's an instrument that people use as, as an excuse for walking away from the faith, for those who are truly is, they're saying, dude, that has just made me need Jesus more. Because I see my own clay feet. The next thing is to trust the God of the table. The first lesson was not put your faith in men. The second one is to not let the departure from the table damage your faith. The third thing is to trust the God of the table. Christ's forehand knowledge of Judas' future betrayal tells us that it was foreknown. In fact, it was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 25, says, Cursed anyone who take a bribe against innocent blood. That was written 1,500 years before Christ. Cursed is anyone who takes a bribe against innocent blood. Psalm 41, verse 9 from David written a thousand years earlier, says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 109, verse 8, is referring to Judas. It says, may his days be few and may he be replaced. That's the passage that Peter referred to over there in Acts. We just read a moment ago. We need to appreciate that God is the God of the table and he may use betrayal as an opportunity for his glory. So we've got to trust the God of the table when you're dealing with the darkness of someone having left the table. Look for his glory in it. The last thing is in Proverbs chapter 9. Turn there. The last lesson from this picture of Judas leaving the table. Last encouragement to you as a shepherd, as a church member, or as maybe a potential church member who's maybe wrestling with, ah, I've been hurt, I've been betrayed. I don't mean to diminish that, but I know, I know what you're saying. The last charge is to be spent, the last lesson is to be spent on those who are still at the table. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, listen to this. We're reading this as a family this week, and I was like, oh, that's so encouraging to me. It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. 
Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, but instead reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. In the five years of going back and kind of capturing these occasions where people have left the table of friendship or left the table of ministry or left the Lord's table altogether and walked away from the faith completely, I can tell you there has been a very real expenditure and a very real chunk of you leaves. But this charge to invest in the wise and to teach the wise is such an encouragement to me. We can be emptied with those that are leaving the table and find ourselves with nothing left for those who are still there. We can empty the love and ministry reservoirs on those who've walked away from the table as we should call to them and beckon to them, please don't go. We can't be completely spent on reactively dealing with them having left because we may find ourselves empty when we're surrounded by others with a knife and a fork in hand saying, let's eat. This should be an encouragement to the elders. It should be encouragement to shepherds. It should be encouragement to all of you who've ever had anybody betray you. That I bet you're surrounded by people who are saying, let's eat. We must beckon and plead with those leaving. But we must see the teachable among us as a reason to go on. Let me pray. God, I pray that you'll use these details and the things that we see and don't see about Judas, this board that we've built with little images and yarn, and the response or lack of response from the apostles and disciples in the early church and from how Christ handled this whole thing, that we will in some way, through some weird work of a kingdom that's from another world, that we'll actually be encouraged in these goods. That we'll be encouraged in understanding what it means when someone has left the table. That in that darkness of someone having left the table, that we will look for and that we will see your glory. Lord, I pray that you will teach us not to put our faith in men that we're so prone to. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to not be discouraged when man, clay-footed man, falls Lord, I pray that you will teach us to be spent on those who are still at the table. Lord, show us how to do that for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.